are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. A reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-9. through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkled by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in the praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith the salvation of your soul. Thank you so much, Barb, for sharing scripture with us today. There's an old hymn that came to mind as I was preparing this morning, just a simple prayer that I'd like for us to begin with today. So let's bow our heads. Oh Lord, show me yourself within your word. Show me myself and show me my Savior and make the book live to me. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we open our Bibles this morning, I want to ask you a question that I bet you get asked all the time and never even really think about it. And that's the question, how are you doing? Let me slow it down just because we're so accustomed to hearing it. How are you doing? It's almost in our culture, more of a greeting than a serious question. When you think about it, you know, Esther and I coming from two different countries and languages and cultures realized this because she was thrown for a loop when she first moved to the United States. Because when someone in her country says, how are you doing? It's a serious question. I mean, it's a kind of question where you would sit down and have a few minutes together for someone to provide a lengthy, heartfelt response. And so here, uh, it's just very different. If someone says, how are you doing? The proper response in our country and setting is basically just, good, how are you doing? To which then the reply is, good. And if you were to say much beyond that, it could even get a little bit awkward. It is more in our country just a way to say hi than an actual question that is expecting a deep response. So in the German sense of the question, I ask you this morning, how are you doing? And I wish it were possible for us to just 
pause this and sit down together and to have the time to share from the heart and to hear how you would answer that question today. But at least on your own, I'd like for you to be thinking about how are you doing? How was your week? Was it a good week? Was it a normal week, whatever normal is these days? Or was it a hard week? Was it stressful? Was it difficult? Where were your thoughts at from day to day? What did you have to get done? Where did you go? What happened in your life this week? I find that even on the better weeks, there is still something in us that is restless and unsettled and never fully satisfied. And that's on the good weeks. I mean, on the tough weeks, on the really tough weeks, then we know so clearly that all is not well in the world and we are not at home. I mean, the world is a mess and your life might feel like a mess right now. And we long to get on the other side of all this and arrive someplace where it will all make sense, where we finally have peace. Until then, this question, how are you doing, will be a question with no satisfactory answer. Today we begin this new message series in the book of 1 Peter called Hope Rising. And in some ways, it might seem like a ridiculous thing to be talking about hope rising right now. Maybe because it was a tough week, maybe because of all of these tough weeks put together. I mean, in, in so many ways, it feels like hope isn't rising right now. It feels like it's fading. I mean, if anything is rising, then it would be things like anxiety, stress, infection rates, financial insecurity, and we're going to talk about hope rising? Yes, we are. Yes, because it is at precisely this kind of time when we're not doing well that hope should be on the rise. And so let's turn to 1 Peter 1, and we'll start to see why. As we begin this book of the Bible, we have to remember here that we are entering into a letter. This is a letter written from the Apostle Peter to some churches that were going through a very difficult time. So just like you might write to someone or call them or text them if they're going through a tough time, that's what Peter is doing here. He's writing to encourage these early Christians. Now, a New Testament letter generally starts with three things. It lists the author, the recipients of the letter, and then it will give a formal greeting. And we have those three things before us here. So who's it from? That's where it starts. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So this is Peter from the 12 disciples. This is Peter the fisherman. Peter who followed Jesus for three years. Peter who denied Jesus three times. Peter who on the third day was at the empty tomb. This is the Peter who preached at Pentecost, who led the Jerusalem church in Acts, and now sits in prison in Rome. And I want you to keep that in mind, that as we talk about hope and even rejoicing today, that this is not some trite message from a guy who is living on Easy Street. No, Peter's life has been hard. And in fact, he is on his way to be executed. But he writes about hope. Who he writes to is what comes next. It says, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now that might all sound very foreign to you and me, but what if I said 
Duluth, Gooseberry, Lutzen, Two Harbors, and Grand Marais. Then you would say, oh, yeah, I know exactly where that is. That's the North Shore. And it was that kind of familiarity for the original audience. They knew these five Roman provinces. This was up in uh, the northern part of Asia Minor, which we today call Turkey. And this is a place where believers in Jesus were being persecuted intensely for their faith, both by the local cities and by their neighbors, but also by the Roman emperor Nero. Scholars believe that Peter wrote this letter during that time when Nero began to round up and kill as many Christians as he could find. The details of what happened under Nero are just frankly too gruesome to share. But just know that this was a time of life and death for anyone who followed Jesus. Peter calls them, here in the opening lines of the letter, scattered exiles, which is an interesting term because we know that these are Christians who were native Gentiles, all living in their hometowns. I mean, if you're from Minnesota and you live in Elk River and you like hockey and happy sticks, then, you know, you feel pretty well at home. And that, that was them. So what does Peter mean if they are not literal exiles who are forced to live in another place? If they're not that, then what he's talking about is a spiritual sense of being far from home. And that is going to be a big theme in this letter. We already spoke to it a little bit, that restless, unsettled, and even persecuted state of being far from home. And we'll say more about that later. What you should know now, though, is that these followers of Jesus that Peter writes to, they were losing everything. There was no security in claiming allegiance to Christ. You had to ask yourself, is it worth it? Is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life? Do I believe that, even if it costs me everything? And Peter, even here in the greeting, is writing to encourage them in their faith. And he reminds them that they are God's elect. They have not been abandoned, but they are chosen by him. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ. Now, we don't even have anywhere close to the amount of time it would take to really unwrap the implications of all that. But I hope that you see this, and that is the triune God written all over this story. That it is the Father who chose you before all time. It is the Holy Spirit who is at work in you, in your life, even now, and that you get to walk in obedience to the one who walked on water and walked out of the grave. Timothy Keller writes in his book, The Reason for God, he says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the reason that Peter writes what he writes in the coming verses. As for these opening lines where we've started, Peter finishes now with a formal greeting by saying, grace and peace be yours in abundance. In abundance. How do you talk about abundance when people are losing their jobs and their very lives, whether it's 2,000 years ago or here and now today? How can you speak of abundance when we're just trying to get by. 
It is because the measure of grace and peace is not dependent on a single speck of circumstance. It is not an earthly measurement. It is not weighed in dollars or pounds or safety or health. Grace and peace are a supernatural gift given to you by God. That's what grace means, the word grace, the gift of God's favor and his kindness and mercy. The Greeks used to start their letters by saying, they'd use the Greek word charein, which means greetings. But in a clever word play, the Christians then just tweaked the ending, and so they would begin their letters like this one by writing charis instead of charein, and charis means grace. Paul writes to the Ephesians about the riches of God's grace that he gave in fullest measure. In Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to be helping at a graduation party later today and and really looking forward to it because I get to be in charge of the root beer floats. Now, I don't mess around with a root beer float, so I guarantee you they will be served in fullest measure. Root beer floats will be lavished on the guests who stop by my little stand at the party. So grace in abundance, and then we see it's paired with this Jewish word for peace, shalom. Paul says in Philippians that the peace of God surpasses all human understanding. And that's what we need, isn't it? Isn't that what we need when the world feels like it's on fire? That it is only God who can reach in and still our hearts and give us rest. Psalm 131 gives us this memorable image. It says, I am like a weaned child. I am like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child. I am content. And the psalm says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. It's a picture of peace. This all-surpassing shalom of God that covers every aspect of life as we are covered by a blanket of God's love. So Paul says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. And this really is the whole message of 1 Peter in a single sentence. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. And may this be our refrain here in the middle of 2020. Worried about back to school? Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Are you stressed by social media or infuriated by politics? Then grace and peace be yours in fullest measure, in abundance. Are you walking through tough days and tough weeks? And we can say to each other, grace and peace be yours in abundance. And with that, then Peter launches into the body of the letter. Now, it will be so important for you these weeks in summer here to read First Peter on your own during the week, because there's just no way that we can gather up all the spiritual food that we find here. Martin Luther compared reading the Bible to collecting apples. And this is what I want to commend to you. Here's how he described it. He said, First, I shake the whole tree that the ripest may fall. Then I shake each limb. And when I have shaken each limb, I shake each branch in every twig. Then I look under every leaf. So what we're going to do today is really just shake the whole tree. And then this week, I encourage you to get out on the limbs and branches and see what is waiting for you there. May the book live to me must be a personal endeavor. And many of you have tasted its fruit 
already in your life. For today, I'm going to show you what I think are the two ripest apples that we can shake from the text. These are the dominant thoughts from which everything else grows. And the first one is this. Praise God for our living hope and eternal inheritance. Praise God for our living hope and eternal inheritance. That's really verses three to five. Uh, you could bracket that in your Bible, just you know, use your highlighter, pencil, whatever, and bracket that. Verses three to five, you might even circle the words, the key words are praise, living hope, and inheritance. In one full sentence again, here's how I put it. Praise God for our living hope and eternal inheritance. Isn't it striking that the first word in the body of the letter out of Peter's mouth is praise? I mean, it'd be one thing if he was on vacation. You know, he's using his PTO, he's got his feet up, a cold beverage. World couldn't be better. He's got perfect health, a good job, a full bank account. But none of that is Peter. That's not the people that he's writing to either. But they're in this place of suffering and hurting. They're scared. It has been a lot of tough weeks. And yet Peter's first words to them after the greeting are praise God. Praise God. And he's going to base that on two things. First, because God has given us a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus died, if we go back in the story, we remember this from Peter's perspective. When Jesus died, Peter thought all hope was lost. It was over. But three days later, Jesus rose from the dead and hope came roaring back to life. We sometimes sing that song that says this in one of the verses. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Beautiful words. So no matter how bad life gets, this means that you have a living hope in belonging to Jesus no matter how bad life gets. I mean, Peter knew that they could chain him up and throw away the key. They could crucify him upside down. They could do whatever they wanted to do, but no one and nothing could take away his relationship with Christ. And secondly, Peter says, praise God, because no one could take away his eternal inheritance. That is the second reason that he says, praise God. Because God has given us an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And think about how remarkable that is. We're surrounded by things that perish, spoil, and fade all the time. I'll give you one example. Here in Minnesota, we wait most of the year to eat fresh fruits and vegetables out of the garden. And then when they come in, we can hardly keep up. I mean, I was just reading the other day that this is a near-perfect growing season for gardening. And there are so many raspberries on the vine that you can't eat them fast enough. And they spoil in the sun or they spoil in your kitchen. There is only one thing that is really non-perishable. And that is our home with the Lord. Everything else will perish, spoil, or fade away. 
But our passage says our inheritance is kept for us in heaven. And while we travel that direction here, as pilgrims on this earth journeying home, it says in verse 5 that we're shielded by God's power through faith. You are shielded by the power of God this week. All the fiery darts of the evil one will be extinguished as you walk by faith in Christ. And that is why Peter can say, praise God. In the words of the psalm, the Lord is my strength and my shield. Praise God, whatever may come my way. And that brings us to the second ripe apple that falls from the text, and this is where we'll finish today. The second commanding thought from this passage is this. We can rejoice even in trials because our faith leads to life. In the text, this is verses 6 through 9. That's the bracket, if you want to put one there. And you could circle the keywords here would be rejoice, trials, and faith. We can rejoice even in trials because our faith leads to life. We asked it earlier, and here similarly, I'll ask again, isn't it striking that Peter speaks of rejoicing when we know what's going on? And not just rejoicing, but it says, in all this, you greatly rejoice. You greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, he says, for a little while means a lifetime, but it is little when compared to eternity. Though now for a little while, he says, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Paul says something similar to the Corinthians when he says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. Whatever you're facing right now, it might be bad. It might be really bad. But it will only last for a little while. There's an old African-American spiritual that they used to sing out in the cotton fields in the slave era. The words go like this. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. How does it finish? Glory. Hallelujah. We can rejoice even in trials because our faith leads to life. It was a tough week for our church family and for a family that we love and care for deeply. One week ago, uh, beautiful mom and wife, Nikki, went to the hospital to be treated for internal bleeding related to her battle with cancer. Then on Friday morning, she had surgery to try and fix that issue. But in surgery, Nikki passed away. Our beloved friend and sister in Christ, Nikki Holmes, went to be with the Lord on Friday morning and was welcomed to her heavenly home. For the past two and a half years, Nikki has shown me how to rejoice even as she has suffered grief in all kinds of trials. For the past two and a half years, she has shown us how faith leads to life and how Jesus led her all the way home. These are hard days. I put on this shirt today and I thought, 
Hope. Can we still talk about hope? Yes. God's word says yes with an exclamation point. Now more than ever. Because it is a living hope that we have. A hope fulfilled. A hope that though we're grieving, yet we are always rejoicing. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Glory. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we say praise be unto you for our living hope that you have given us in Jesus Christ. We praise you, Lord, today because you have made us your sons and daughters and you have prepared a home for us in heaven. In our tears today, Lord, in trials of many kinds, we will yet praise you and rejoice in your name. We thank you for the life and memory of Nikki Holmes. And we pray that you would comfort Sean, Peyton, Preston, and Phoebe, Nikki's parents and family, her friends, and all those who are mourning. Lord, would you go before us into this new week, whatever it holds, that we would be filled with hope and that we would know your grace and peace in fullest measure. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.